Let's just bow in prayer. Lord, I ask that as uh, we take a moment to look at your word and specifically the life of Jesus and this teaching in Matthew, that our hearts would be open and receptive. That you, Holy Spirit, would feel the freedom to move and to to help us understand maybe some things in our life that we haven't seen or to understand some things about how you work. And I, I just pray, God, for any person here who is kind of trying to understand who you really are in their life, that you would allow for this time to be one of those moments where you come face to face and there's a divine encounter. We invite your presence in Christ's name. Amen. There's an article, first Tunisia, then Egypt, now Yemen. That's how it starts. I got this little time. I get every, every morning a little Time magazine update. And that was the headline, and it goes on to say, Yemeni protesters chanting during the day of rage on Thursday, despite the president's confirming on Wednesday that he won't re-up re, uh, re for election in 2013. And then Newsweek, just earlier than that, February 7, 2011, cover story. And you can't, you know, you're really kind of missing things if you don't see some of these things that are going on in the world around us. Um, it's just in all the papers and all the press. And cover story says, rage goes viral. From Tunisia to Yemen, a youth quake is rocking the Arab world. Get ready for the aftershocks. One by one, the lines of communication that connected Egypt to the 21st century shut down, the article says. Twitter, Facebook, and eventually all Internet access were cut off. Text messaging became impossible. Then millions of mobile phones went silent all across the country in Egypt. But the protests and the riots continued, as had had for most of the week with thousands of young Egyptians trying to take down the regime. In the hours leading up to the day of rage demonstrations, the government did everything it could to cut them off from each other. All the forms of communication in order to break down any kind of voice that would activate people to revolt. And it's really interesting, in our Middle East Area, there is a revolution that is going on, and we don't know what the outcome would be. In some ways, it, it, for many people, it's a very scary thing. It's a fearful thing. And for some, they're exhilarated. They're excited about what's going on. Some people, especially those who have suffered under the old regime, who have experienced the oppression, are stirred to enthusiastic support. In fact, some of those people who are in those very countries or in countries where there are oppressive regimes as well are, are stirred to the point where they're prepared to commit themselves in very costly ways. They're willing to, to give up their lives for the cause, possibly sacrifice all their possessions to see some kind of overthrow of the regimes that they have lived under. And yet there's others, especially those who are comfortably content with the status quo, and they look out and they see that this will overturn everything, and what they have, they're going to lose. And they see the revolution as a threat to be resisted. 
those with power and wealth and position and status then do all that they can within their influence to stamp it out, cut it off, shut it down, suppress, repress, so that this won't continue. I think it's a really interesting thing when you look at it that way because that's always going on in revolutions. Revolutions cause people to, on one side, go, boy, I'm afraid. This thing happens. I'm losing all. And then there's others who are so enthusiastic and they're going, I'm so excited. I'm giving all. I'll sacrifice anything to overturn this oppressive regime. Even our own country was uh, birthed out of a revolution. We forget that. We look at these revolutions from afar and kind of go, wow, they, you know, unbelievable. But you know what? We were birthed from a revolution. I was reading this past year the life again of George Washington and also one on John Adams and some others. I was just kind of in that time looking at some of the things that were going on in the birth of our own country. And, 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 and many of those ones that we look up to with great esteem were revolutionaries. And even in their country, and I remember reading a few of these books, there were certain people who were in the Americas who actually went back to Britain. They couldn't understand why people would revolt against this government. And yet there were others who, who incited by key taxes and other things, said, I can't, I can't stay any longer under this oppressive regime. We will overthrow it. And there were people who sacrificed their lives, and then there were others who tried to repress it. And I find it's interesting is that we forget... When we look at the life of Christ, one of the things that often happens is we take, in, in almost an anachronistic way, we take things about where we're living and we just take the Scripture and, and put our own stuff on it where we don't try and understand what's really going on in the time when Jesus lived. And so we've been looking at Matthew and we've been looking a lot at the kingdom of God and, and what Jesus has to say about the kingdom of God. But we forget when you approach the life of Jesus that, that we're examining a revolutionary do you know that Jesus was a revolutionary who God anointed to come and to bring a new kingdom to overthrow some oppressive kingdoms? In fact, the word you want to use for kingdom might be better replaced with the word regime. It might be better to say the Jesus revolution when we look at the ministry of Jesus. Ever thought of it that way? It kind of turns it a little bit and spins it a little bit when you begin to understand that when, when Matthew writes this, this gospel, he's writing the good news to a bunch of Jewish people who he announces in chapters 1 through 4 that the revolutions come. The leaders arrived. The king who's going to set these new, this new revolutionary new world order has, is, is among us. And then as you go on, you read in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, he lays out the revolutionary teachings and principles that this leader has come with. And then as you watch and read through 8 through 9, you begin to see that Jesus begins to demonstrate what this new world order will look like and how it breaks into the everyday lives of people who are living under illness and, and oppression and, and, and feeling far off from this God who resides in heaven. So that and finally in chapter 10, as Jesus is going in 8 and 9, I believe He's teaching His disciples. He's not just the revolutionary who's sharing principles in, in new truths. He's also sharing how this revolution breaks into the lives of people. And he says to them in chapter 10, now you guys go out by two and do the same thing. You go out and be revolutionaries. 
And so then when we come to Matthew and we, we look at verse chapter 11 and 12, you now begin to see Matthew begins to, to show us the different responses to the revolution. How people looked at it and some who out of fear resisted and some who were enthusiastic and jumped in and couldn't wait to be a part of this and were thrilled that this revolutionary Jesus had come. But it ends in chapter 12 very interestingly because it, it ends with those who are in power and those who have the status and, and they are the ones who are content with the way things are, very much afraid. And their response to Jesus is one, we've got to do everything we can because they don't believe this is the revolution that's really come from God and this guy is going to mess things up for them. I mean, that's why Herod's upset. Herod looks around and he sees this John the Baptist, he got things going, so he... He takes the head off of John the Baptist. And then as you look later, you see Herod very much afraid even of Jesus and what he will bring. And, and, and the reports from Pilate back to Rome were all about this potential uprising, this revolution that could come and actually begin in this one sector of the world. It's, it, it's not too far off than when you think of England and they had this new country called America and the reports were coming back that, hey, there's a group of people who are beginning to revolt and this revolt under these leaders could, could cause us to lose this country and could overturn the whole regime and so back in the palace Caesar and them I'm sure they hear reports from time to time well you have this this chapter 12 ending with people saying we got to get rid of this revolutionary we got to suppress it we got to cut it off we got to stop the Twitters we got to quit the text messaging and you know, that kind of thing we got to kill the revolutionary. And so the idea of revolution, when you look at this, and if you would begin to start to put in your mind this way, it gives you, I think, a key. It unlocks, in a sense, what Jesus is saying in chapter 13, what he says about the kingdom. He says it how many times? Twelve or more times in this chapter about the kingdom. Or if you want to look at it, the new regime. This Jesus, the new revolutionary, the one who's been anointed by God, the Messiah, has come. And he begins in chapter 13, and he says, you know, the new revolution, you know how it's going to take place? It's going to take place like a farmer who goes out and takes seed and begins to throw it into the ground. In, in some soil, some hearts are going to receive this revolution. They're going to be excited about it. In fact, they're going to be so thrilled, their hearts will be so open that, that, the, that this revolution will so revolutionize their life that some of them will have their life revolutionized in some ways up to 30, 60, even 100 times it will be the impact through their lives and to others. And then he goes on, he says, and, and he helps him understand this revolution, this revolution to come. Well, someday there will be a total revolution where there will be an uprising so much so that the political powers, the kingdom of evil, the regimes of, of, of Satan himself will someday be removed. But in that time between, you're called with the soil of your heart to go out and live in the world and to impact the world with the love of God so that in that one point when, when, when the king comes and returns and overthrows everything externally, this kingdom will be transforming the world. And so then he gives these last couple parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. And he makes it really clear, this is how this kingdom comes. This kingdom which will someday actually transform everything. And as you with your hearts begin to live and to love in this world, it will happen in these ways. It will be probably pretty small. It will probably be rather quiet and unnoticeable. And it won't be always immediate. 
over time, as God begins to work in your own heart, you'll begin to see this change from the inner part of who you are, which will begin to move within you. And as it begins to change, you will begin to transform you. And as it transforms you, you will become more and more like Jesus himself, that revolutionary. But that's often a process that takes time so that what happens internally begins to impact that which is external. And as I was preparing this, just that little twist helped me when I thought of it in the sense of revolution. And it gave me an understanding of some of this. Now, it's interesting, as I was putting these sermons together, and I give to Andrea, who works with the worship planning team to try and coordinate all these things together, I made a mistake, and I, I had two messages that I was going to do twice. In fact, I was going to do the mustard seed and the leaven, but I did them all in one time, because as I studied it, I realized they came together. So I missed last week, verses 34 and 35. So we get to study that this week. And I'm really kind of excited about it because it's just a little editorial comment. Jesus has been teaching the crowds. Now he goes into the house. But after he's done teaching the crowd, he, he makes, Matthew puts in this little editorial comment that we're going to talk about. But before we do that, I just want you to read verse 36. You see, he, he's been teaching in, in parables to the crowds. And verse 36 tells us this, that he left the crowd and he went into the house. Remember, he left the house, went down to the sea, sat in the boat, began to teach stories all afternoon, got done after an afternoon of telling stories, goes back into the house, says verse 36, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the fields. Well, just prior to that, here's the aside, here's the editorial comment. Look at verse 34 and 35. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Basically, in verse 34, the first part says Jesus spent the day telling stories. The second part of that verse merely affirms the fact that Jesus was, in a customary way, that's what he did, was tell stories. In short, parables were essential to his ministry. So verse 35 says, So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Now, I really like the way the message translates this or paraphrases it, puts it in, in words that are contemporary. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, All Jesus did that day was tell stories. A long storytelling afternoon. His storytelling fulfilled the prophecy. I will open my mouth and tell stories. I will bring out into the open things hidden since the world's first day. Now, you might be thinking, well, so what is Matthew getting at? Because that's exactly what I've thought for years until I started paying attention to all this revolution going around and began to put it in the context of that. See, Matthew is proving once again that Jesus is the king, this revolutionary, this one anointed by God that they have been waiting for. And this Jesus has come saying God's revolution has come, the new world order is here. He's, he's been saying that, and that's what's been promised throughout the Old Testament. So if you read Matthew, you'll find again and again Matthew will say this one that was prophesied in the Old Testament, this one that was foretold in the Old Testament, he's here. And he's fulfilling these words. And the fact that Jesus taught in parable proves this to be true, says Matthew. Asaph, the prophet, in one of his psalms, spoke about this. And then he quotes it, verse 2 of chapter 78 in the psalms. 
He begins and he says, here's what was quoted. This is, this is how Jesus fulfilled it. This one who that afternoon was telling stories, and that seems to be the custom of his ministry. It wasn't that he always just told stories, but mostly a lot of his ministry is around storytelling, which we'll look at in just a moment why. But here's how he fulfills it. He fulfills it just as Asaph did. He's, he's a type of storyteller that Asaph talks about. He says, I will open my mouth and tell stories. Now, that's a very interesting word, I will open. It, we, get, we don't really get the depths of what this word means. It really literally means that from deep within, you know, deep calls to deep, deep within who Jesus is, deep within the bowels, in a sense, of Jesus, comes out this revelation, this understanding. And the word actually is one that's it's kind of unpleasant, and you've experienced it, I'm sure. It's, he belches forth. That kind of a... That's kind of a weird word, except for it's this idea that it's so within him that it just kind of comes out with force. Or another way it's, it's translated is to utter from deep within, indicating the richness of this revelation that comes not from the very depths of just Jesus, but from the very heart of God. And the idea is in this, that Jesus brings together the various streams of revelation in the Old Testament Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pointed to. And Jesus is now telling them stories that, that tie together these different streams that they didn't get. They understood the idea of a conquering king who would come according to the Psalms, who would rule and overthrow all evil. But they had difficulty understanding and they they would pass it off, the whole meaning of Isaiah's suffering servant. How does a suffering servant come and sacrifice, give his life, die for people, and yet he's the conquering king who is victorious over all? How is it that this one who comes, that that Ezekiel talks about, is the son of man, the one who is, who is, is, is the fullness of man in one sense, and yet at the same time he's called the Son of God. What, what Matthew was saying is that this Jesus who comes and he speaks in these stories comes to tell these stories so that when he is telling about the revolution to come, if you pay attention, you'll see the act of God in history. And as you begin to understand these stories, he will tell these stories that help bring together all these streams so that you can begin to understand and hear and see some deeper truths about the revolution that most of the people in that day were missing. And Matthew is calling the people who are Jewish readers to stop, listen, pay attention. This Jesus who is before you is telling you about what the revolution is that he's brought. And a lot of people are going to miss it. So if you look at Psalm 78, and I'll just read the first eight verses. It's 72 verses. It's one of the longer psalms. And it begins, it says a masco, which is a literary or a musical term, which gives you an understanding if you're going to actually be in a worship setting in that day, what this psalm was like. This was not one of high praise where it was just kind of like you'd sing the words over and over again. You know, people talk about, you know, why do we sing the words over and over again? Because sometimes the only way that we let ourselves go so the richness of what is being sung over and over again begins to flow into our heart. People who are very cerebral, very, very much in their head, have a hard time understanding the kind of words that just says, God, I just worship you and I praise you. And as you do that over and over again, there's a sense where you allow your heart to be free to express that to God. Now, this is a different kind of one. This is one that is more reflective. It's, it's one that would cause you, as you, as you hear it, to not you know, lose yourself in, in the sense of, of worship in that sense. But it's more one where you try and go, okay, what's being said here? It's a teaching psalm. 
And so in verse 1, he says, My people hear my teaching and listen to the words of my mouth. I think when Jesus, when Matthew was quoting this, people would understand those, that first verse. They, they knew Old Testament. They're not an illiterate people in that sense. Most of their understanding came through memorizing. Verse 2, I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter th- hidden things, things from of old. In a sense, he's saying, I'm going to tell you stories that hide important truths. You get that? I'm going to tell you stories that hide important truths. So that he goes on in verse 3, things we have heard and known. So these are stories we've heard that we're aware of. Things our ancestors actually sat around and told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation. We will actually tell these stories. We're going to tell about how, how God came to Abraham and called him and how God then came to Moses and led a people through the sea and, and how God brought them through the wilderness. I'm going to tell these stories and we will we'll tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, the acts of God in history in the stories of people's lives and His power and His wonders that He has done. That he decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. And then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his acts in history. And then would keep his commands because they see of this God who lovingly acts on their behalf. And when he acts on their behalf, he must, when he comes to them, giving them a command, must have his good in, their good in mind. You know, when God comes to you with a command and calls you to do something, it's not because he's trying to make your life painful. It's not because he's trying to withdraw or hold something from you. He is actually coming because he knows that in the obedience to that command, he will set you free. He will give you what your heart longs for. And so he's talking about this, and he, and he says that when you, when you put your trust in God, you wouldn't forget his, his acts in history, and then you would keep and obey his commands. You'll want to follow them. They would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. So Asaph goes on for another 60-some verses. We're not going to read them. Recounting story after story of how God worked. Story after story of how God intervened. How God steps into history. How He interrupted the story of a person's life. But they failed to understand God's act. They failed to listen when God was speaking. They failed to see the deeper significance of how God was moving in their life at that time. They refused to believe. You know, God right now is moving in some of your lives. He's done things that some of you don't like. He's done some things that you're joyful about. But in all these things, He calls you to see it, not just as some story that's occurring, some, some things that you're living out. He calls you to see how He's acting and intervening or working through the process so that what your question is not, why, God, have you done this? But God, how do I respond to this in a way that I move more fully into the things that you're calling me to? And so when he's, he's edit, he puts this little editorial comment in here, he's saying, here is this Jesus who has actually acted in the story of your lives, you guys. Some of you just a few years back, because you know about his story. His, his actions are such that you're to see the significance of who he is and what he's done. You, you see what he's saying here? Stop. You just, the crowd, he's just spoke to the crowd. The crowd is itching their, scratching their heads. And he puts this little editorial comment in there to cause these people who are, in a sense, reading it like the crowd to say, don't just read these as stories. 
understand what God's doing. Don't just look at what we're doing here as a church going along. Understand what God's doing here. It's really easy to go through all this and, and, to, and to live out our story, but without an understanding of the deeper significance of what God is actually leading us to. And so he says, in a sense, stop, I want you to look at this. The historical events of Israel are far more than mere events, says Asaph. In these events, Asaph, who is called a seer, a prophet, sees the hand of God at work revealing his story, history. And so Matthew's little edit is very similar to Asus in a sense. Where Matthew is saying, don't miss God's revolution. In Jesus, God is acting. The Father is intervening. Look closely at Jesus. Open your heart. Listen to everything Jesus is saying because these are truths. One of the great truths is how deeply and, and, and how, how totally He will transform this world that you're living in, your world, if you open your heart to Him and walk with Him in a faith relationship and grow in intimacy and begin to understand this God is so in love with you. He is so in love with us. He is so in love with the person you work next to that you can't even stand. This God is so in love with your neighbor who lets his dog run across your yard and do things you don't like. This God is so in love that He wants a relationship with you so that He can begin to do the things internally so that the external world can come to a change. Now, now what you need to understand as we come to this point, oh, I was going to make this point. This is probably a really important thing. Why does Jesus conceal? Why does He speak in, in, in these kind of parables? This is a really interesting thing that came really clear to me as I was thinking about this as a revolution. Do you know that Jesus was so cautious about what He said because He knew the wrong word. The, the, you know, if He directly came out and said, I'm the King, I'm the one who's come to change, He would incite a, a mob of people who would throw Molotov cocktails, who would run down to the, to the area where Rome was at. The standing army of Israel, zealots, would come running and they would overthrow things politically and that was not what he was about. Does that make sense? The reason Jesus had to be so careful is just in the same way when you see what's happening in Egypt and Yemen with all the twittering and all the things, there were people on the edge of their seat waiting for this revolutionary of God and what they were waiting for was something external. They just thought if you could just get the right king in, everything would be okay. If we could just elect the right president, our world would be good. Baloney. That's a lie from hell. The only way this world will be good is the first point, and that's this. The revolution of Jesus is a revolution of our hearts. It happens in here. And one of the reasons I think Jesus came with these stories to talk about the revolution and what it was going to look like is He said it's the soil of your heart that you need to pay attention to and that you need to know that in this life, when the external revolution will finally come, you'll understand when that revolution finally comes and, and Satan is toppled and this whole new world order comes externally. He is the kind of God who always works internally to move things externally. He'll do it in your life. 
But if you, if you continue to go, oh, if it's just all about here and you complain and your, 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 your lack of joy, you don't live in peace, you worry, you have all these things, what's, you're, you're, you're basically living out the external world that rather than living out the kind of revolution that happens in your heart, which is based on the promises of God that comes to you and says, guess what? This God is for you. He loves you. He will act in your, play, in your, in, in, in your defense. He is a God who will begin to take you if you open your heart to Him, if you allow yourself to examine your own heart to begin to say, God, what are these patterns that I've grown up to where I move into fear or I move into anger or I have to get into a place that I need to manipulate to make this happen because if I don't make what this is supposed to be for other people, they won't accept me. Whatever it is. God says, no. I have come to bring a revolution in your heart. And here's the other thing. He's come to bring a revolution of heaven into your heart. This is something that that he was trying to help them understand. He has actually come. When Jesus was praying, you know, he was asking God the Father. And and they were asking him, you know, how should you pray? When Jesus taught his followers, pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy revolution come. That's, remember, not that the revolution come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wasn't just quoting. He wasn't just trying to give us good poetry. He wasn't just trying to give us a nice little prayer. He was praying reality. He was saying, God, would you do this? Would you pray to your Father that He will open up opportunities for you so that heaven will begin to show up on earth right now in your heart, right where you live, and you would bring a little bit of heaven everywhere you go? You would begin to be so ruled by the peace of God that when you come into a situation that should be fraught with all kinds of tension and worry, there's this, there's this grounding of peace that comes from very heaven itself. That when you come into situations and all the circumstances stand against you and everything should cause you to move to sorrow and despair, you stand there in the joy of God knowing He's on the throne and that this heaven is in your heart right now and that joy can begin to transform the world around you. And that's the revolution Jesus proclaimed. We, we've missed it in the church. We have missed it at times because we have talked about a revolution. And we, we've, we still are in this kind of more political overthrow kind of thing. We sometimes as Christians live this life going, God, just help us get through someday to the when you come again. We've made so much about heaven, something far off and something that we have to wait years for. Through the course of history, the church has, at times, I think, missed it. And they've missed what I call the practical, down-to-earth power of this revolution of Jesus that comes into our heart, which is bringing heaven here now. We, we have for too long shared a message about Jesus' revolution, which has been about getting into heaven someday, rather than understanding it's about today. You see, the revolution of Jesus about the power of God to transform our hearts today, it's very down to earth. It's very and extremely practical. It's not merely about getting into heaven someday, but much more about heaven getting into you today. Do you know that? The moment you open your heart to to the Lord, 
now you have an opportunity for the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to move through you so that you have entered into heaven this day. You have turned from living for yourself. You have turned from the patterns that have held you bound. You begin to renew your mind in Christ through the Word of God and through these encounters that you have with God as you have your story intervened by the very process of God. You turn your life around. You begin to allow heaven to rule. Heaven begins to rule in your heart as you grow over time. That which is external someday begins to show up even here today. It will come fully someday. But our responsibility is to get heaven into our hearts today. Right? Now you can clap because I believe this so deeply in my heart. And, and I really... I really believe that we are being called as a group of people in this church and in this community and in this state to begin to say, God, we want you more than anything else in this world. We want heaven to transform us today so that we can begin to change this world around us. We don't have to be bound by our economic circumstances. We don't have to be bound by the political things going on. We can speak up for ourselves, but we know there's a God who's control and we know there's a God that revolutionizes our heart and we have a message of revolution that is not about some external thing. It's about what God can do in your situation, in your situation, in your situation today. And that's the God we serve. And this kind of God changes things. His revolution is so incredibly powerful that, that uh, as, as one guy who was reading, one commentator said, David Wenham, Wenham writes, he says, the revolution Jesus proclaimed was not just up in heaven, it was an invasion of earth by heaven today. And then he went on to say his extraordinary miracles were evidence of this. You might go, well, why were the miracles? It was evidence that Jesus was revealing that even our diseases which he healed are tangible evidence of the overthrow of Satan's evil empire. The regime of evil and disease and hopelessness has been conquered. And that's why we pray for people's healing. Now, we're not responsible for the outcome. I'm not saying that every outcome will turn out the way we want it, but we do have this. We have a command to pray for that. That's a command. And Jesus' revelation is so practical that it impacts our very relationships with one another. It has to impact your relationship with your wife. It has to impact the relationship you have with your kids. It has to impact the relationship with the people you work with. That's why when you read the Scriptures, the social barriers were turned, torn down by Jesus. There were Jew and Samaritan were together, men and women, rich and poor, zealots and scribes, people of all color, race and generations, all of them began to mix together because this message is so powerful it revolutionizes the heart because it brings heaven now. And it's not about some intellectual truth, it's not about some religious rules, but it's about the ability to enjoy and experience deep and meaningful, intimate relationships today. And if you're not experiencing that with one you live with, man, now just get on your knees and say, God, do what you need to do in me. Open my heart to this revolution. I will sacrifice whatever you want to be a part of this. And not only is Jesus' revolution about the relationships today, it's also about the relationships that we most primarily experience with God. Most people, most people do not understand how deeply God loves them. I don't. I am still praying, God, would you do a steep work in me that, it, that so is soaked and saturated by your love that it just controls everything I do and say. Because God wants you to know how special you are to Him. 
God wants you to know that He gave His Son and this revolutionary came and He set up His kingdom, but He had to do so by giving His life and, and dying on a cross in order to make it very clear to you when we do this communion in a few moments. This is a supper. When you share supper with someone, it's about intimacy. And, and, and Jesus was so clear about this. He wanted you to know that your Father is not some far-removed person. He is your Daddy. He called Him Abba Father. You're special. It's a revolution that changes your identity before God the Father. So He's forgiven you. So live in it. He's extended grace. It's free. And He's brought you intimacy. I, um, I remember as a kid growing up, and I, I remember feeling that specialness with my own father. Some of you never had those experiences, and some of you even had probably even deeper experiences in mind where you felt really special your you just your dad it was a special thing i remember when i attended graduate school and i would i would um my dad was the president and i would at times walk up to him and some people who didn't know that my father was the president they go wow you know the president and i go yeah i kind of grew up with him <laughs> i'd go into his office and you know without an appointment and you know people would look as i'd walk by and it, it just you know you felt special I remember at times when he was a pastor and he was preaching and they'd have a line of people and I'd come up and as a little kid I'd just grab his leg and he'd put his hand on me and it just felt so warm and good. Do you have that kind of relationship with God the Father? That's how He loves you. When you come near Him, He, he, he loves you so deeply. I remember my dad, I remember when he, you know, he'd come home, um, he spent a lot of time you know, during the day working and he'd go off and out at night and do because he was so busy with his church and... But I remember he'd come home sometimes around 4 in the afternoon, 4.35 for dinner. And as a little kid, I, I, it would be late in the day, and I'd hear the door open. And as the door would open, I'd, I'd go running full speed from wherever I was at to where he was at. And as the door would open, I would see him. He, he'd put his briefcase down. He'd open his arms, and, and he would yell, Daddy's home, you know, and I'd jump into his arms. I loved how special that felt. And I look forward to that time of day that when I'd hear the door open and I'd hear Daddy's home and I'd just go running. And I did that day after day until one day. My mom told me. I don't know, my dad couldn't bring himself to tell me, but my mom took me aside and said, Kevin, and I could tell she was struggling when she told me this. She said, Kevin, your father cannot play Daddy's home anymore. And it's not that he doesn't love you because he does. And it's not because he won't always be there for you because he will. It's just that you're 32 years of age now. <laughs> and he just can't handle you jumping in his arms. No human being, no human circumstances, no human outcome, no earthly power can deliver the life that your heart hungers for. No revolution of man, no presidential leader, no new age that man could bring through any political system can usher into your life the heaven your soul longs for. There is a heavenly Father. This was Jesus' whole message. There is a heavenly Father who so loves you, loves you so much that not even a sparrow can fall out of a nest that he doesn't see, that he doesn't know, that he doesn't care about. There is not a hair on your head that he does not know about. And this is the revolutionary message that Jesus brought. It's about what God can do for you today. If you'll just open your heart. If we'll just open our hearts and recognize it. Let's just uh, prepare our hearts for this time of communion. This is a, a time that is God saying, 
I love you so much, I want to be with you. Do this again and again to remember how special you are in my eyes.